Trumanitarian. Welcome to Trumanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. This week's guest is Tina Tinde, who works as the head of delegation for the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in Nigeria. Tina has worked with international cooperation her entire career and has, according to herself, grown up in the UN. The topic of our conversation is gender, inclusion and protection against sexual exploitation and abuse. It's a depressing, frustrating and unacceptable aspect of our humanitarian sector to see scandal after scandal erupt around humanitarians, exploiting the very people we are supposed to assist and protect. And as you will hear, Tina, in good Norwegian fashion, speaks her mind clearly and loudly. However, in spite of the seriousness of the topic, as you'll hear, this is not a depressing or overtly angry conversation. Tina is a very positive and driven person, and she tackles these serious and very personal issues with humor and excessive energy, and that is why her message is so impactful. She told me after we did the interview that I was a good listener, and I'd like to repay her the compliment by saying that she's a very good talker. So please fasten your seatbelts, sit back, relax and enjoy. Here comes the Inclusion Rider. Tina Tinder, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you so much for having me. It's great uh, that you had time. We, we arranged this very quickly. You're on your way back to Niger, where you're based. But, but we managed to meet up on this Friday, sunny Friday in Geneva. It's rather wonderful, actually. And I look forward to a great conversation around gender inclusion and safeguarding with you. How are we dealing with these issues in the humanitarian sector? But maybe where we should begin is to figure out who's Tina. You on Twitter, your handle is Inclusion Rider. So just tell us who, who is Tina and why is her handle Inclusion Rider? Yeah, the, the handle on Twitter comes from, um, from Hollywood, actually, where there were some actors, um, white actors, who said that they demanded um, the same pay to actors of color as for actors who were uh, Caucasian white extraction. So, so that became a term, uh, inclusion writer. I saw it maybe four or five, six years ago, and I immediately took it as my uh, as my handle, because I think it's there's a responsibility by the um, privileged groups to step up for for justice and equality. It will not come by the, uh, by um, by itself. And so, what's your story? Where where do you fit into the sector? What where do you, where do you come from? And and what have you been? Uh, where do you come from professionally and what have you been doing? Yes, um, well, I'm, I'm from Norway uh, and I studied um, social sciences, anthropology, journalism um, for several years. And I was recruited to the UN in New York in the Department of Public Information after a national competitive exam uh, when I was 25 years old. So I usually say that I grew up in the UN. Um, and uh, it's easy to take to heart the mandate of the UN. Um, the quest for peace and justice and equality. And I have seen that the, the UN um, uh, mandate uh, is extremely similar to all the other actors where, where I have worked. Um, so that uh, it doesn't feel so different for me, even though I've worked in a number of different organizations, I find that the goal is usually the same. So I, I'm not very good at uh, turf fighting. Uh, I, I can be quite flexible, uh, just like discrimination is flexible. I can be flexible and work in any organization. I and I would usually use what I've learned from one and, and try to apply it in another. And 
and just uh, just work for uh, let's say uh, inclusion and advancement of people who are discriminated that i would say is it's what uh, what drives me and the job where you maybe had the biggest influence to do that you were the advisor to antonio guterres uh, when he was uh, at unhcr Uh, where you were his advisor on gender and safeguarding said right special advisor on uh, gender issues it was a a job that was created after some intense negotiations i think from the norwegian foreign ministry yes so i came there so i worked on um, prevention uh, and response to sexual exploitation and abuse i uh, helped to to draft um, the secretary general's uh, strategy on assistance to victims and that's another key uh, word for me victims or we can also say survivors uh, of uh, gender based violence So, so I was extremely happy to be working on that. It was not easy. This was back in 2004 to 2009, uh, but this was a time just after the uh, Mano River uh, scandal, as we call it, where three three countries in West Africa there were there was a report about uh, I think it was about 66 men who had been reported for gender-based violence against children. So this was the uh, let's say um, the old Oxfam scandal. Even though Oxfam may or may not have been involved uh, at that time, I don't remember. But there were many organizations represented. So so my position then was created uh, in a, in a response to to these violations. And I already knew about these types of um, of abuses from um, Cambodia, where I was in a peacekeeping operation in 92-93. Uh, and I was also present in a meeting with the, the head of uh, the, the mission, who said that the boys will be boys, and this was re- uh, this was reported in Time magazine. And I was sitting there, and I could not believe how uh, an organization with such noble goals could even approve uh, publicly the kinds of exploitation of the local women and children that I also witnessed. And so you enter the UN at. A fairly young age, and I'm sure that uh, as a young woman in that system, you have your own set of uh, stories around uh, how gender uh, plays into the workplace. You work at a very senior level, advising the the High Commissioner for for, for refugees, and today you are with the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, where you. Also have sort of a gender advisory role, or include? no? I've appointed myself as my own gender advisor. You appointed yeah, yourself, yes, fantastic. Yes, it was. It took about one second, <laughs> uh, and and but I didn't get a raise. I mean, that's a bit. That's that's too bad. Uh, but it's it's not really about me. But um, but I'm so happy that I have this chance to speak with you, and hopefully there are lots of listeners out there. I do love to speak, especially to young people. So hello everyone, if you're a student, and I'm I don't mind hearing from you later. You can. You can add me on Twitter and send me private messages um, uh, if you uh, want to discuss further. So, um, yeah. So in this this position, what I want to to explain is that I think all all uh, heads of office, which I am now, it's a temporary position with the um, with the Federation of the Red Cross, Red Crescent. I'm very happy about it. I'm in Niger. It's one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, and it it it's also uh, riddled with uh, with conflict and disasters. Um, and uh, and there's also much violence against women and children, and so there's um, I feel that there's a, there's really a need for for good cooperation with the government and with the host national society, the Niger Red Cross. So I, I find that I'm in a good spot, um, and um, I also want to say that for a head of office of a humanitarian organization, there's always not always time. And you don't always have access to the expertise on gender issues. If you look at our websites, uh, there's there's no lack of principles. There's there's actually no lack of tools. Uh, 
there are, there are trainings created by so many uh, organizations and the content of the training and the content of the codes of conduct etc and the policies they're they're really excellent so it, it's up to us to see how we can implement it and that's where you need the expertise because if you want to have a high level discussion with the government a host government on on finances and budget you definitely speak to your finance boss before and then if you want to have a high-level discussion with the government about gender issues, what do you do if you've never uh, worked on gender issues? If the post was cancelled two years ago, you're new in the country, um, you, have a, you have a million things to do. So this, I was facing this. So when I landed in Niger uh, in, in May this year, I had already sent some tweets to Femme Action au Développement. I found them on Twitter, they replied. I had also contacted, uh, I found deep on the, on, the, on the web, I found the email address of the, the head of the interagency um, uh, network of uh, protection from sexual exploitation and abuse. I wrote to him, he answered, and these women also answered. So, so I thought that uh, this will keep me on the, um, on the straight and narrow. So when I go to Niger, I will not be a head of office who will forget about all the principles and everything I've been talking about for 30 years, and not only me. So then I actually had to do it. So I, I, I was so happy that these women wanted to see me because I know that they know more about Niger than I will ever do. Um, their office was a little bit hard to find. Uh, my driver is he, he is from Niamey, uh, but uh, we couldn't find it. We got lost. It, it, I, I was car sick by the time I got there, not in a very good mood. But of course they cheered me up and we've had several meetings after. They are helping us. And so this takes time. And the reason why I could do it, it's not only because I am uh, extremely interested, it's also because the team is so good. So I want to say that I feel a little bit guilty that my team would have to work harder on all the you know, um, operations, and etc., because uh, they were very happy that I could use my gender advisor self-appointment to be doing this. And I'm now working on a pilot. So what I'm trying to do now with the local women's associations and with the host national society and several other Red Cross uh, that are there uh, is to create some, some good practices that can be shared with, the, with others uh, in the sector and also in the, in the federation. I'd like to dig in a bit to the shift you have had between being for many years an advisor on these issues in a sense standing on the sidelines, saying all the right things, I'm sure being very frustrated over the lack of change, and then suddenly to become the head of delegation for the Federation in a country responsible for the overall management of the portfolio and, and with, with all the constraints that that entails. When you reflect on that shift, where's the bottleneck? Why do you think we see so little change? You said yourself there are great tools out there. It's not knowledge, actually. And, and let's be honest, it's not a no-brainer to create a work environment where, where people are not harassed. And it, it's, it, it, it's, not, it's not technically difficult to comprehend. Or, or so. so why doesn't it happen often? Well, uh, gender discrimination is ingrained. Uh, and it's not only happening in Niger, it's happening in all countries in the world. Um, so uh, working as a gender advisor for me, it was always um, very interesting. I was very happy to do it. But as you said, very, very frustrating. Uh, I've heard sometimes when a gender advisor is appointed, some people are worried that they're going to have a bitter uh, gender advisor. So I think that uh, for me, I've, I've, I've leaned on some uh, good mood and good friends and family who have uh, gotten me through uh, all of this. But um, so the ingrained uh, gender discrimination um, is extremely, um, you can always uh, understand that. 
And then also, uh, and that has led to the fact that these operations, I would say gender-based violence, is a, it's, it's a pandemic uh, as bad as any other pandemic. And um, the efforts to, to, to finance the, the response and the assistance to survivors, that system is not um, integrated into governments. It's not a major part of development organizations or of humanitarian organizations. So all the statistics show that. I think two or three percent of humanitarian assistance is devoted to gender. How on earth is that possible in 2021? So you, what we're saying is, on one side, there is a culture which is really heavy in terms of, of gender roles often and discrimination against... Uh, Pre prevalence yeah. of male managers in governments, in parla parliaments. Um, and uh, I have noticed if, if we, we also have to think about positive matters, it is that there are now gradually more women in senior positions. Several of the heads of agencies, such as the World Bank, um, and I think also WHO and others and embassies in Niger are headed by women. Uh, and uh, it's not automatic. Women are not born uh, to be gender equality experts, and many women actually support patriarchal structures. But I find that uh, many of us also, we have, we have grown up um, as, as girls, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, she says it helps to have grown up a girl to understand gender discrimination. So we find, I find that it's easier for me to, to find the tone and to perhaps um, strategize with women, but there are also many men uh, supporters like, like yourself and like the men in my office. They're big smiles about everything that I, that I do uh, on gender and uh, gender-based violence issues. But let me ask you, so you, we, we have a culture that makes it difficult to work with gender. We have a lack of a policy framework uh, creating a conducive environment. We have a, often a predominance of men in, in central roles. Now, I'm sure you knew this before you went to Niger, but being a manager yourself and having that responsibility, what surprised you? What, what surprised you of how difficult some things are? Or, or is it just easy? When you come in with the motivation and the drive that you have, is it then easy? Or, or where are those obstacles? Yeah, it's a little bit about the timing also, because we there are actually new scandals regarding abuses of uh, affected people. It comes out every week. So this is not something that I have to speak about uh, just by myself. Uh, there are many good journalists who are reporting on this. I find it a little bit embarrassing that it's um, mainly media who are reporting on, on the violations. We, I think we should be much more open about these things in our own organizations and including governments. But um, we, uh, we really will uh, need to work closer together there's um there's a good quote by an expert on gender-based violence she says that uh, cooperation on complaints mechanisms should be a requirement for funding so that brings me to some of the the strong governments who are funding uh, humanitarian assistance uh, and bilateral uh, cooperation with governments if if they actually put it as a requirement so so i've found that um, for me it's easy but i'm saying if i were a finance uh, expert. I've never studied finance for a minute in my life. So let's say I came in there with an MBA. I think that as a manager, I think I would have liked to use that uh, expertise. And so maybe the Niger cluster office would have become a superstar on just excellence in finance. And I think we all know that, that, that there's not enough hours in the day for a manager to know all aspects. And that's why I'm just using that as an illustration, that when, you, when you're not a gender um, uh, advisor, when you haven't worked on it, you need one. And, and then you need to put it into the budget, which I'm doing. So from the first day I was there, I have put gender issues, um, fighting um, sexual exploitation of affected people, I put it into every report, budget, job description, plan, meeting that I can get my hands on. Because I can. So what you're saying is, if you 
have the intent that you have to really drive this agenda forward, you actually recognize that you're too busy and triangulated left, right and center by all the other agendas you have. So you need a specialized person who then has your attention and access to you as a senior manager in that country. And then you need to mainstream it, not just in language and words, but in money in, across the different budgets. And be measured on it. And so that I would say, I'm now going to ask for a meeting with the, um, the head of the World Bank uh, when I get back. Uh, I have already spoken to their advisor on uh, sexual exploitation and abuse. And uh, that's a woman who I said, that, and she's in the first position of that kind that she has in DC, but she covers Niger uh, remotely. So she and I, it's not even a plotting. I can tell this to the microphone, to the world, that it's not a secret that I, as a head of office, can ask other heads of offices for a meeting. And, and I don't want to blame all the others who do not do this, because we all come with our own education, our own experience, and we come also with the pressure that is, let's say, from a regional office or from a headquarters. It's, we're all just people. So what I'm doing is to now understanding, I, I also told you it's time consuming. It's not just that I, we got lost on the road in the MA. I've also organized um, together with colleagues two workshops on sexual um, harassment in the workplace because I could, I could spend a little bit of money from the budget. So money is, is gold for gender advisors. We have so little of it. So I thought at least now I can, I prepared the terms of reference. We held two really good uh, workshops on, on prevention and also got uh, fabulous recommendations both from men and women on what to do. One of the men, he even put in the recommendations that um, you should not send dick pics to people. It may seem like a nice gesture f from you, but please make sure that you ask women before you send them. And, and so these are things that are actually happen internally in organizations that some of our uh, colleagues, and even though I'm now 57, so I thought maybe I would be protected due to my age, because I know that uh, young uh, people are targeted very much. Uh, but, but still, uh, this thing can happen at, at any time. So the recommendations are fabulous. So I would like to say, if, you, if we want to start doing well on, on um, uh, gender equality and the advancement of women, we have to, everybody, we have to work on it internally. It has to be on the agenda. There has to be onboarding about national legislation. Sexual harassment is prohibited in uh, um, over 150 countries, according to our World Bank statistics. So it is prohibited. In Niger, it could be punishable by fines and, and prison. Uh, why does not everybody who starts to work in that country or in Switzerland, why isn't the information about the national legislation the first thing? Because we cannot hide behind any kind of diplomatic immunity. That only covers behaviors of the top, top executives of international organizations. And even then, there, should be, there, will, be no, um, there will be no impunity for sexual uh, abuse and harassment, according to the Secretary General of the UN. But in practice, um, yeah, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit difficult. It's really sound advice on the dick pics, by the way, and I'd like to echo that. Please don't send those to people. That's basically not good practice. But I think the, the question is, when you leave in a couple of years, do you think the number of dick pics uh, circulating in the office will have gone down? Well, we also have to make sure that uh, those who might receive uh, obscene uh, and unwanted messages, whether it's by a photo, by a telephone, there, there is so much sexual harassment that is happening even in the four months since I arrived there. So there, it's happening uh, left, right and center. And it's not only, I'm not saying that it's only from people from Niger. There are other nationalities who are there. Uh, there's a male entitlement that a um, lot of men think that they, they should have access to women's and girls' bodies. Uh, and that seems to be, we have not been able to get rid of it uh, in the humanitarian sector. 
And I don't want to only bash the humanitarian sector because we are, I don't think we are worse than any other sector. This is happening in church, in sports, uh, in, in media, in Hollywood. You have Harvey Weinstein. You have, there's, it's, I, it seems I also to be happening think, in every sector. Yeah, I also don't think we're worse, but I don't think we're better. No, and, you, and people are more shocked. Because I, you know, I speak with friends and they say, how on earth can, can there be wrongdoing going on in a humanitarian or in a, or in a human rights uh, uh, office? Uh, and I spoke to, I just had a, uh, an appointment with somebody work, working in the medical sector who said that, that it's really shocking that, um, that uh, there would be any kind of this. And I said, well, if you give me a few minutes with some of your nurses, yeah, exactly. uh, if, you, if, if you let me, and then he sort of said, yes. He had heard that there were um, particularly one group of doctors, he said, who had a reputation in that hospital to be to be pursuing young women. And so if the culture is that they should get away with it, what do you, those young women, that's why it's so bad in the workplace, because they will, we all need to make a living. So it's doubly bad when it happens in the workplace. I don't approve of sexual harassment in a nightclub at all, but if it at the same time affects not only your health and your well-being, but it also affects your paycheck, that's where employers have to be extremely vigilant and share a lot of information to new staff and regular updates about legislation. If you take a scan since you were 25 uh, till today, where has the progress been? What, what, what is it that has changed? It's the tools. Uh, so I was missing those when I was young working at the, at the UN. I was sexually harassed uh, pretty badly myself. Um, and there was no, um, there was absolutely, absolutely zero uh, support. So I spoke to a few colleagues about what something that had happened. It was actually a director who undressed in front of me, and he pointed, uh, you know, to, to me, and he he wanted me to do the same. I mean, come on. So I was basically hired as a sex toy in the UN, and of course I spent the next two years trying to get away from that person. So women, very soon, the signal was sent to me that I had no place there, according to the director, except to be undressed. And you know, you'd, I didn't study political science and anthropology to be looked at like that. And I know, I realize there are men also who are looked in the same way, but it's a, a lot of women. So I spoke, to, I spoke to some colleagues about it who I trusted, and they said, oh yeah, we've had a lot of sexual harassment cases, and, and the women are usually declared uh, uh, hysterical, and the men are usually promoted. So that's how I was received in the UN. 30 years ago. Uh, and now at least there is a little bit more understanding. I think the Me Too, Aid Too campaign, it has it has shed light on the issue. Uh, systems have not changed enough. I think the resistance against change in, in governments, parliaments, uh, private sector and the humanitarian sector, I think the resistance is massive. I think we've had actually a pushback where um, men have been used to having all the senior positions. Now they're supposed to share 50-50, get out of here. A lot of men are not uh, are not ready to do that. So, uh, and I also want to mention that um, when we do work on gender issues, it's not only coming from, from the West. You have the Maputo Protocol in Sub-Saharan Africa, which has wonderful principles on gender equality, uh, prepared by Africans, adopted by Africans. It's not... It's not something that comes from, let's say, from the Netherlands or the, the UK or, or, or Sweden. They may know each other, but this, these principles, I've heard actually a Norwegian a male diplomat who, who told an African woman that we don't want to shove our gender equality down your throat. This was in a meeting in the foreign ministry in Oslo. And she sat up, she was at a PhD from Egypt, and she sat up uh, and she said, sir, we are perfectly capable of promoting our own uh, gender equality on our own. 
So here you had one a guy in a, who had been an ambassador in a senior position. I could hardly believe my ears. It was embarrassing that he he actually in his, his mind he thought that the gender equality came from. So that's why I, I speak a lot with women from Niger because they know the challenges much better than me. So I always make sure to put them, you know, at the podium, uh, also men, and so that we can learn from them. Because even though I'm very driven and I've worked on this a long time, there's a lot of things I don't know. So I, what I hear you saying, Tina, is that the big progress you've seen over the past 20-some years is on one side that we speak about it much more, that it's part of the discourse, that it, it has come into the light and, uh, in, in a way. And then I hear you saying two other things. One, that we internally must carry out investigations when when we see a case come to light, but that we also need independent watchdogs, such as journalists or local civil society, to ensure that we we have um, that that we don't police ourselves in a way. All right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very good point. That's that's um, the crux of the matter. It is very difficult. And of course, also humanitarian organizations, which I, I know quite well, they've also been punished uh, by even being open about cases. And that should not happen. Because yeah. this is this is a process where we need more openness about it. And then, and so instead of punishing uh, organizations for, for cases popping up and being reported, we, we actually need funding. And we are not a profit-making uh, sector. So we cannot just suddenly find money or, or produce something and sell something. We, we need it mainly from from governments and also private donors and they can they can um, demand what the money should be should be spent on yeah I'd like to pick up on on what you said uh, and and for me it is sort of the what is the role of the institutions and and uh, versus the personal aspects of this and and how do we actually build a system that both have hardcore accountabilities in terms of uh, complaints mechanisms, investigations, uh, independent watchdogs, as we talked about, but also a culture where we this becomes less and less uh, visible. Because I'll be honest with you, it, it can be very, very difficult from a managerial position to to sometimes detect these things. I'm, I'm, I don't have the benefit of having grown up as a woman, so I, I am blind to many of, of, of these things. Um, I found and learned quite late in life actually how how blind we we can be to these things and I I have to be honest it, it can be actually even with the best of intentions to 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 see this because it's um, it's very discreet often yeah it's a good point because the atten- intentions can be very good but they could still be harmful to a survivor so so that's why we need the expertise because what I do, um, if I, I'm contacted every week by um, by women mainly, but also some men who have been sexually harassed, or, or and that includes rape. It's part of sexual harassment. And um, and at this point, I don't think that most organizations are not mature enough to be conducting a trauma in um, trauma informed interview, where because very often the survivors are extremely distraught. So they, they can break down. Uh, they may be, they're not coherent. Uh, they've probably gone through the worst experience of their life and then they might be losing their job also because of it. It is so unfair. So what I speak with, with survivors about is what, what would you like to do? How, when do you feel safe? What can we do? How, is, how does your career look? And what can I do to assist you, but not taking over the matter? Because a lot of, a lot of us, uh, we, when we meet somebody who's been experiencing injustice and pain, we want to do things in their behalf because we find them so weak. But there's a lot of strength in survivors. And I, 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 they have to be even stronger 
than those who have not experienced this because they ha still have to get up in the morning. They, they still have to, to, to make a salary and they still have to deal with their friends and family and everything. And many of them do not tell friends and family what has happened, like, like I, for instance, I would keep things very quiet back then. Um, so then I try to build, at least to establish this trust and to tell them that I'm not doing anything that you would not like me to do. So, so there is a lot of well-meaning family and friends and, and managers who take things into their own hands and start to send maybe emails and say, oh, you should speak to that one and that one. Maybe there's an ombudsperson. They're usually very, very good at, at keeping things confidential and quiet, so they can be very helpful. Uh, usually they have too much to do, uh, but that's one function. You usually have an ethics advisor. Uh, but also, I think all of this uh, would be much easier if if the, um, the funding that uh, major organizations provide to, let's say, humanitarian uh, crisis areas, if the funding also focused a lot on developing the local mechanisms. Because as humanitarian organizations, we can do very little if there's not a justice system or service providers. So the lack of clinics for people who have experienced gender-based violence, the lack of that, it's, it's, uh, it's terrible. There's not enough at all in, I think, in, in most countries and especially in the countries experiencing uh, disaster and, uh, and conflict. I'd like to take you back to the doctor you spoke about, who was surprised that these things happen in our dear little industry. I, I'd like to ask, to, to what, what extent is it an obstacle for us addressing this in a mature, sensible manner that we are somehow seen as the good guys and sometimes god help us even see ourselves as the good guys and that that so this shouldn't happen as your doctor friend said this how can this happen right so what do you do when it happens yeah well we we have to hold ourselves to account so we have to walk the talk and the tools that i mentioned it's fabulous i've seen a, a great improvement in access to information. And it's not very often being used, uh, not enough, because people are so busy. Uh, and the humanitarian sector by itself is working in an emergency mode. Uh, and But uh, what about the development organizations? I worked for the Inter-American Development Bank um, on diversity and inclusion, and I brought up this sexual exploitation and abuse topic, and there was no interest in working on that. This was um, 12 years ago. So I basically couldn't do it. Uh, so there has to be a leadership on it. Um, there has to be not uh, not looking at um, being a gender or diversity advisor as a, as a private hobby. It's very often seen as a, something that would benefit me as a woman, or if it's a if it's a black woman, it would benefit her. So I would say that discrimination and and excluding people from from top levels and decisions it is extremely flexible. So so this would affect any sector. So the, like I said, it's in it's if you work in theater, I'm sure you know you've seen a huge scandal in in the cultural sector in Sweden, for instance. And Sweden is, um, uh, is considered to be a gender equality paradise. But uh, gender-based violence and harassment of women, it's, it's, uh, it's run amok there in, in various sectors. So yeah, so I, I don't like to focus so much on the humanitarian, but I, I just wanted to, to tell that it's actually been quite a liberating, exhilarating experience for me to come as, as a head of office and to, and to be prepared to do this and to have a little bit of money and to get such good uh, response from Finnish Red Cross, Spanish Red Cross, French Red Cross, the back donors, it's usually the foreign ministry. Uh, so I find now that there, is more, there are more alliances being made and that's good because information networking, that's what's been keeping women away from senior positions and away from budgets on gender-based violence. So if we as women, with the men who want to support it, and there are many 
very good men who support this from all over the world. So I remember when UN Women was created, I was furious about the name. So that was 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And we had meetings here in Geneva. I was at UNHCR and I thought, why on earth would we call uh, the agency for UN Women when women should never be put at the center of taking the responsibility for the gender-based discrimination committed you know, almost almost by men. So why should it why should it be um, called UN Women? Why, and there were emerging of four UN entities and there were about 400 people working there, almost all were women. So I felt it was so unfair that all these women should then be uh, tasked by a, a world body to solve gender equality uh, problems around the world. So I made a proposal to the Norwegian Foreign Ministry where I put, made a, um, a budget because I can do that when I want to. So I, I found out how much it would cost to hire 400 gender equality male specialists from around the world and not to put them in New York because even though New York is a fascinating place to, to be in and to go to the opera and everything, I think that uh, the, the work that the UN is doing, it has to be mainly done in the countries where the needs are the most. So I wanted these male gender experts, they were, I, I knew male gender experts from Pakistan, from Kenya, from the Philippines, that they would be embedded with the ministries of justice, health, uh, labor, everywhere, and that that would be financed and that they could work in their own language and that they would have that kind of protection that I think they might need with at least a, a, a world body who said that you should be there. So this, I think the U UN Women is now working on obviously more deployments. They're working closer and closer with government. So I think they're on a good track. But I was so surprised when this, uh, when this started. So your, your main message, if I hear you right, your main message is what we need is champions at leadership level. We need diversity at leadership level. Women, more women in senior roles does make a difference. And a bit of money, and then we're basically on the right track. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's a nice uh, summary, uh, Lars Peter. Um, there was a suggestion. I spoke with a, a woman who works on PSCA in, um, in a major uh, UN agency the other day because I do a lot of networking and it's probably hopefully going to increase with this po podcast uh, because together we're stronger and she said that there had been a suggestion that if we could only send out women uh, aid workers because now with the Ebola scandal um, the 72 women who had none of them had used the existing uh, reporting mechanisms they said even if they knew about them they wouldn't have used them because they hadn't seen any uh, respect by those employers than seen it in practice because these women are not stupid. Just because you're poor and you're looking for a job and you live in, in, in Congo, it doesn't mean that you don't know what's going on. They actually know more than us. So, so then the suggestion was that let's only send uh, women. And I agree that would eliminate sexual exploitation and abuse by 100% because all the perpetrators that I know that have been reported, it's been men. I mean, women also can do sexual harassment in the office, uh, the, you know, so we have to separate these two areas. But there's mainly men and 100% who are reported who go out as humanitarian workers. And many of them would like to, to have a little bit of sex, uh, sexy time on the side in the evenings with the young women or whoever they um, recruit. Because the, the, the difference in power and money, it's so major. And then I mentioned the entitlement that many men feel to women's bodies and issues of, uh, of selling sex, etc. There's many who, who would actually need to, to have that little bit of income to feed their, their children. So, so, so yeah, you could eliminate sexual exploitation and abuse by having 100% humanitarian female workers. But my concern would be many, there would be many concerns. It would be that uh, those women themselves would be at risk because their uh, gender-based violence has not been eliminated anywhere in the world. 
So then again, we would put the, the burden on women. So I would, I would um, uh, suggest uh, a balance, gender, gender balance in humanitarian teams. It would take us a long way. And of course, the vetting of candidates, etc. There are efforts going on on there on that also. That's very important that human resources uh, get more re, uh, more uh, access to to staff who can help with the proper uh, recruitment and onboarding, so that they can uh, weed out those people who have a um, a CV with different uh, holes, you know, and they they can pick it up, but they need to have the time to pick it up. So that's another uh, area in the humanitarian sector where it's very difficult for HR to have a, a, a full uh, attention to people's background and even what they're doing when they're there if they don't have enough people to do it. So I, I feel like we've spoken a lot about Niger and I, I sense a good understanding of how you're trying to change things there. But when you leave, you come back to Geneva, we hope, uh, to, to continue your work here. What are your top three messages for the senior managers in the humanitarian sector? It is to work with the donors who have this as a top priority. I, I realize there's a competition for, for, for activities. That's always I've always been told that as a gender advisor. Maybe let me challenge you a bit on that. So, so you've spoken a lot about money and the donors and how powerful that can be. But isn't that too easy? I mean, should we not be looking inwards? Do we really need the donors to come with a stick? Yes, because nothing else has helped. And I am shocked that after uh, working 32 years in the um, in international cooperation, I'm shocked that we haven't come further. So I have seen that the position that I, I took on on um, prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse in 2016, it was based, it was because of uh, results-based financing by a, a donor, the British government. So, uh, and I was mentioning also that it's difficult for a, uh, an office manager or a head of a country office to have, um, let's say, profound, constructive conversation about an area that they have not worked in before. So that's why I'm saying that we, the donors would then finance. So you can't do anything without having the people who have been um, educated and experienced to do it, and preferably with some local uh, language knowledge, or at least the, the sense to, to, to work with local people. So yes. Number one, donors keep it on the agenda. Be strict, everybody. Because we've had enough conversations about this. I'm sorry we're sitting here talking, but but I, I still think there's a purpose to it. And the and the second one is to, um, to start uh, internally to have the sexual harassment uh, legislation uh, conversations to present them to new and existing staff. Uh, and uh, the third one is to to demand uh, the same from governments that we demand from ourselves, because there are a lot of uh, networks inside governments, uh, and I'm not only talking about the global south. Uh, I have worked for for the Norwegian for Norwegian agencies, the Ministry of Defense, NORAD uh, Development Agency. I worked for them, and I've seen that it's almost as difficult there to push this as it is uh, in a government in the global south. So nobody is a hero here, nobody. So the local perspective, um, engaging well, as they do in empowered aid, such as journalists have been doing. It is to get the perspectives, to get the recommendations from the local people on what should be done. And even though I think that I know this sector, I still would learn from what they're saying. Because they would know who and which clinic would be capable of what. They would know which police station has, you know, that did good work the last time somebody reported it. They would know which police uh, station did horrible work. Uh, so also, as you know, we should work ourselves out of a job. And that's not going too well. 
But if we continue to have, let's say, so duplicate channels, so that we think that humanitarian organizations should have this kind of reporting mechanisms, and, and mind you, we can only do administrative investigations. We in the, in the international organizations, we can only decide if that person should work with us or not. We do not have the mandate to do criminal investigations. There's a huge confusion about investigations. And for me, I'm obviously happy if there is an administrative one, because then that per person might be rooted out. But if that person then ends up being hired six months later in another emergency around the world, these, these things happen. So the main thing is actually the local capacity to, to investigate and to prosecute, and also to offer health and livelihoods uh, um, assistance to those who have been exposed to this kind of uh, aggression. So yes. I would say donors number one, and then uh, ensure uh, sexual harassment legislation is known throughout the organization so that people know their rights, because then they could help uh, better on that topic on the ground. If we are, if you are, if you're afraid yourself to go to work, and you're a 25-year-old woman, and I met many of them, uh, and you end up leaving the sector because you're afraid of your boss, and your contract is so short that uh, that you are actually some are being pushed to sleep with them to be uh, to be um, deployed to another part of the world. I've seen that kind of recruitment going on in a, a number of organizations. And then the, the local people, they're the experts. They are the ones, uh, and if we would support them keenly, then they, then they um, get a more important role. They also need access to, to resources. And then they could be hired by their local government. I would rather see a young um, woman from Niger or a young man from Niger working on these issues in their own government than to come to an international organization. Because we're, we're not even supposed to be there. Tina, thank you so much for your work, your leadership within this incredibly important area. It's, it's really an inspiration what you're doing. I look forward to having you back in Geneva, uh, hopefully not in a too distant future, and to follow your, your work moving forward. And thank you for coming on True Humanitarian and sharing your, your insights. Thank you so much. Freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each. Who will lead? Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian.